Well, good evening again. I'm delighted to uh, see you and to be with you again this evening. And I want to express my appreciation, especially to those of you who have been with us uh, each and every evening. I appreciate your patience and uh, your support and encouragement. Uh, this has certainly been a blessing for me, and I pray that it has been helpful for you in some small way, at least. Uh, it has been a great experience to uh, renew and strengthen old acquaintances uh, this week and to make new friends, especially those who share the common faith. And you've been so kind to uh, take us uh, into your home each and every evening. And uh, once again this evening, we were blessed to be with the Lewises and uh, to remind ourselves of our long association together and uh, look forward to uh, other occasions when we can be together and share in the common faith. Um, and, of course, uh, you've been so kind, some of you, to make uh, generous comments. Uh, I uh, understand I, no, my own limitations, and uh, I appreciate so much your kindness uh, in uh, uh, saying uh, that you appreciate the lessons. But I, I'm pretty sure uh, that you feel very much like my wife suggested to me this afternoon as we were preparing to go. Uh, I think I'm suffering from ism PSTD at this point. And uh, yes, we have another ism this evening as we attempt to take every thought captive for the obedience to Jesus Christ. And uh, this evening we want to talk about a particularly pernicious but perhaps a less recognizable kind of ism uh, worldview in the world today, and that is neo-Gnosticism, as I call it. And uh, this neo-Gnosticism is not a new kind of an idea, which is, uh, I think, characteristic of everything that we have discussed this week. Uh, it is an old but a newly powerful ism, a uh, point of view, a way of understanding the world that permeates the mind of many people around us uh, and uh, perhaps may even be reaching into our own kind of thought process. This uh, neo-Gnosticism is an old but uh, powerful doctrine, uh, false from the beginning, but it emphasizes this idea of... Uh, personal spiritual knowledge above the orthodox teachings, uh, traditions, uh, authority of traditional religious institutions. Uh, and uh, I don't want to get into the technical debate. There are many people who would argue that Gnosticism, as we know it in the second and third uh, century, was not something that was prevalent in the first century and then was not addressed directly by the biblical writers. But no idea as pervasive as this just springs from nowhere. The seeds of this kind of Gnostic ideas were clearly present in the first century as they had been in the uh, first century B.C. And uh, as a result, the uh, Holy Spirit has given us the tools we need to recognize and to defend against this kind of uh, false idea about the world. And the uh, word Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means uh, in uh, simplest forms to know. And it means to know, in a sense, a personal kind of knowledge that supersedes the kind of knowledge that we would get 
from the information conveyed with words or the information that we get from the world around about us. And this kind of uh, philosophy or idea seems to emphasize that the principal element of salvation is direct knowledge of the deity, uh, not some kind of uh, a plan of uh, redemption, not some kind of commands by which we can uh, obey and thus satisfy the deity, but because of what we know and the way in which we think about the deity, we are transformed from within as opposed to being saved from without. This idea of Gnosticism also focuses on the sense that the world around about us is not as it appears to be. It focuses on the idea of illusion and a sense that the world, the world of perception needs to be pulled aside as a veil so that we can see what really is true about the world and uh, not be deceived by this illusion that uh, we are not so much concerned about sin in its actuality as we are uh, concerned about the appearance and moving the appearance aside so that we can see the real underlying nature of the world and of man. This kind of uh, emphasis is much more on our inner motivation than our outward obedience. It focuses on uh, satisfying uh, our needs internally as opposed to recognizing that we have actual external need for uh, redemption, need for repentance, need for obedience. It focuses much more on how we feel and what our particular motivation is. And of course, I understand these are ideas that are appealing to us, and in some ways, the Old Testament to the New Testament moves us from an external kind of form of obedience and a, and a written law to an internal kind of, uh, of a law written on our hearts and uh, uh, a... Uh, focus in obedience that begins from the inside as opposed to just focusing on an outward kind of hand-washing, law-keeping kind of obedience. But this focus of the Gnostics goes much further than that, and it's uh, clearly uh, an idea that you can see in the second and third century writings, and it's an idea I think you can see in the world today. Peter, I think, addresses some of these early Gnostics. At least the words that he writes gives us some sense about the kind of errors these Gnostics were likely to be uh, fall into in the future and the kind of objection that we should raise when we see this kind of Gnostic sort of heresy. Uh, we also recognize these in the uh, book of uh, Revelation, uh, going by the name of the Nicolaitans. Jude, of course, uh, in many ways makes the same kind of uh, objections to these people that Peter does uh, in their denial of the Lord, in the profitlet lives that they live, in their contempt for government or authority of any kind, in their evil speaking of dignitaries, uh, even the spiritual dignitaries and uh, their uh, evil speaking about things they don't really understand and in their great swelling words. Yes, I know. Uh, I uh, recognize the irony of that as, uh, as I uh, speak uh, even more loudly than I did before. And they are clearly marked by their antinomianism, that is their opposition to laws 
and hopefully there's no way by which you would think that uh, that might apply to me in any way whatsoever. Look what Peter has to say in 2 Peter chapter 2, beginning in uh, verse 9. And I'll just pick out these uh, particular characteristics of this group of men that he is so concerned about and so opposed to. They indulge the flesh. Well, that, of course, would characterize almost anyone who is opposed to the laws of uh, God's morality. But they despise authority. They despise the kind of authority that can tell them what they ought to do. They can despise the kind of authority that shapes the way in which they are able to achieve uh, a union with uh, God or the deities as they see it. They have this uh, sense that uh, any sort of uh, messenger of authority, any of the angelic majesties are contemptible, that they are just as um, uh, elevated and have the same kind of insights that these angels do. They revile in areas where he says they don't have knowledge. They revel in the daytime. Uh, They revel in their deceptions, he says. And as we move on through the passage... And look at uh, uh, beginning in uh, verse uh, 14, uh, reading on, uh, they never cease from sin, and they speak arrogant words of vanity, and they promise them freedom. And maybe that's the key issue in this passage. That's the reason they are so dangerous, because they promise people freedom from the outside authorities, the outside tradition, uh, the requirements for obedience. They are able to achieve some kind of uh, enlightenment, able to achieve some kind of union with the deity, merely on the basis of the way in which they think inwardly without having to change anything outwardly. And uh, that, of course, is a dangerous kind of philosophy. You see these mentioned, I think, again in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 6, where we read about the uh, Nicolaitans and uh, in subsequent kind of writings and uh, uh, secular uh, sources outside of the Scripture. seems like these Nicolaitans have this kind of Gnostic sort of philosophy. In Revelation chapter 2, we read uh, uh, about the Nicolaitans there again and uh, the uh, concern that uh, they are creating in these churches uh, in Asia. And then particularly important, Revelation 2 and verse 24, we have this kind of interesting tidbit of information about those who are in Thyatira who have not known the deep things of Satan as they call them. And, of course, uh, we are enticed as to what exactly does that mean. Uh, You recognize the way in which uh, the Holy Spirit expresses this as they call them, the deep things of Satan as they call them. The idea that there are these mysteries, these unknown to the ordinary population kind of ideas that are deep and that are powerful. And uh, this, I think, is a... A reflection of at least the early form of the Gnostics, who think if you know these things, it gives you some advantage. Not an advantage in the way in which we think about if you know how to make gunpowder, that would give you an advantage. But if you know these things, you're transformed from inside, outside, and you have some mysterious, spiritual, mystic kind of advantage over the world by knowing just these deep kinds of things. 
And I think you recognize, too, that probably these early Gnostic teachings give some insight into the way in which John has written his Gospels. Uh, John begins, you know, the things which we have seen and heard and touched and handled about Jesus Christ. It's, a, it's an interesting way in which he starts that, but I think it is because he is aware of these early uh, Gnostic kind of teachings that there's no reality to the flesh, there's no reality to the things of the world. And uh, so he has these kind of things to say about them. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 6, If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet we walk in darkness, then we lie and we don't practice the truth. If we say, that's implication about these people who think that all you have to do is say it, I think, as you go ahead, 1 John 1 and verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, uh, and of course uh, it could be you're just talking about people who are naively saying, oh, I don't have any kind of sin, but I think he's getting at, as you look at all the passages, this kind of philosophy that says, you know, if we don't think we have sin, then we don't, don't have sin that we can have fellowship with the deity by the things that we know internally, by our internal motivation, without having to go through obedience to Jesus Christ. First uh, John 2 and verse 4, um, uh, the one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. Uh, the one who has said, I have come to know him. And of course, you know, maybe at some points in time, that could apply to a variety of different ways in which people have self-deceived themselves, uh, that they are not Christians, uh, that they are Christians when they are not. That, that, uh, but it clearly an application to this idea that developed in the second and third century and that you see prevalent today. People think, I've, I've come to know him. I can feel him in my heart. And he says, if you don't keep his commandments, then that's not the case. That's just not adequate. And of course, of course, for John 2 and verse 9, the one who says he is in the light and then hates his brother, then he's clearly in the darkness until now. This use of the phrases, I, I, uh, the one that says, the one that uh, thinks these things, says, I know God, I abide in Christ, and I'm like, these lofty kinds of claims uh, were made by people who did not walk in Jesus' footsteps and who were destitute of love, and the apostle says these are false claims, lofty as they are, and yet there are people who seem deeply to feel, I know Christ, I walk in the light, I have fellowship with the Lord, just on the basis of their inner experience. I, and I, I understand, you know, I, those ideas have less appeal to me and perhaps to many of you than they do to a multitude of people in the world today. From my point of view, uh, you know, the world is solid and is practical and what can this do and, and uh, how does this work and uh, the, the appeal of the gospel that says you're a sinner and uh, what you need is redemption and you need some propitiation and you need a remission of your sins and the blood of Jesus Christ does that and you can get in touch with the blood of Jesus Christ by believing in Jesus and being baptized and being obedient and living faithfully. You know, that's, that's, that just makes sense to me. 
But to too, very many people in the world today, and certainly to the agnostics, you know, that's, that's too practical. That's too pragmatic. From their point of view, you know, I know it in my heart. And that's what's really the most important thing. And the contrast to what these people think and what they're claiming, John says in 1 John 5 and verse 20, he has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. And uh, we know that we're in him. If, in fact, we obey him, we know that we have his love and we love him if we love the brethren. Those are the kind of practical measures of whether you genuinely are in Christ or not. Verse John 2 and verse 29, if you know that he is righteous, you know that you yourselves also are righteous who practice righteousness. It is it is, uh, you know, concrete, and that's a very different point of view than that of those Gnostics who supposed that it was, you know, in terms of some kind of feelings and some kind of special esoteric knowledge that we have this relationship with God. And in 1 John 3 and verse 10, by this the children of God and the children of the devil are made obvious anyone who... Uh, I'm having a hard time reading that here. Uh, anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. And, of course, John's not trying to enunciate the entirety of the requirements of the gospel or the plan of salvation, but he is making this clear. Just the feeling, just the claim is not adequate. There must be some practice of righteousness in your life. There must be some evidence of actual love of the brother as opposed to just a feeling. You know, I know it in my heart. Uh, one of the things that we observe here, central points of this kind of Gnostic philosophy as we see it developing in the second and third century, and as we see it resurgence in America today, I think, is the idea that it clearly does not come to the common folks, the practical people of the world, the ones who have to work for a living, who earn their living by the sweat of their brow, uh, those people who know what the reality of the world is, uh, who feel uh, hunger and thirst, and those people who feel the necessity of life, and those people who have the satisfaction of a work and a job well done, those people who have the satisfaction of holding their child and uh, raising their children and the kind of companionship they get in married, marriage, that, that's real stuff. And, and you don't see those people being distracted by this idea that it's all just a veil. This idea of Gnosticism could not have arisen, never really takes root very much in the practical people of the world, in the common folks. It arises in the cultured, in the sophisticated, in the speculative group, the people who have too much time on the hand and too much prosperity, and they begin to doubt about the things that everybody else takes for granted and knows to be the case. Um, they doubt the perceptions of the world. Uh, the uh, Hindus call this uh, maya, the idea of the illusion, the veil of the world around about us, that uh, what we see and what we experience is not the real world. And, of course, the common folks are deceived. They think 
yeah, this world is real. But those who are sophisticated, they understand that there's something more than this. You know, this is the idea in psychology, perceptual psychology, cognitive psychology, that somehow we take in uh, various kinds of stimuli and we create or construct the world and that the way in which we think about the world is just a uh, constructed reality. Among the social um, scientists, the sociologists, there's this idea that the social reality is constructed, that it is changeable because it was constructed out of our interactions with one another and we could change it to something else. And so they feel like ordinary people who are not sophisticated, they're locked into this kind of delusion about the world around about them. And uh, there's this uh, sense that somehow we ought to be able to change that and penetrate behind the uh, illusion and come to understand what the uh, real world is behind all of this kind of uh, perception. Uh, they, th they think this, that salvation comes then through some kind of uh, specialized knowledge. Salvation does not come uh, from God. Salvation comes from knowing something that other people don't know, that it uh, comes from some kind of intuitive sort of knowledge and understanding. The Gnostics, that, that phrase itself, was the people who knew. And because they knew, that knowledge constituted them as some kind of separate and special class of beings whose current status and future status was different because of the things they knew not because the things they knew led them to behave in a different way or led them to understand things so that they could uh, make better choices and better decisions. No, it just changed them and made them superior and saved them because they knew it. There really are two kinds of knowledge that the uh, Greeks used words for, the Gnostic kind of knowledge, which is an in intuitive kind of knowledge, uh, and a epistemy for epistemological which is knowledge of the world it's the it's the information that we get and we test reality by and this kind of gnostic sort of knowledge is intuitive and special in some way that is uh, beyond the uh, recognition or the uh, capabilities of the ordinary people and uh, so they are exalted by this kind of thinking and it's pretty clear when you read the numerous Gnostic Gospels that were written uh, in the uh, second and third century uh, that uh, there's this, this uh, kind of increasing confidence that if we know these things, then, uh, you know, the rest of the world doesn't matter because it's all kind of an illusion. It's the uh, ideas that undergird much of the Dan Brown uh, knowledges, uh, the uh, uh, novels, The Da Vinci Codes, the Saturday morning specials on the Discovery Channel about the hidden secrets of the Bible. It's the kind of idea of the Kabbalah, that if we just could read the code and all of a sudden, you know, it would illuminate our lives and our minds and uh, we would be then lifted out of this common uh, reality. More than that, the Gnostics felt that it gave them magic control over the world that uh, because you knew this stuff and because you could see through the illusion uh, of the veil of uh, reality and you could see what was real back there, you had some special control over the world. 
And uh, so particularly magic pronunciations became important for them, repetition of various kinds of vowel sounds, uh, this uh, emphasis maybe in uh, Corinth on ecstatic utterances that, that uh, fit, fed into or was maybe by, uh, in some way strengthened by this kind of sense that if you know these special things, that you have this magical control over the world. And uh, one of the characteristics of the Gnostics was, if this world's an illusion, then the body is not really that important. This world is not that important. What's really important is the spirit. And so the body is evil. The spirit is good. Uh, the Greek idea, the soma, sema, the body is the tomb. The spirit needs to be set free. And the Gnostics thought they could set the spirit free from the body, not by practicing some kind of asceticism or some kind of difficult sort of, uh, of uh, disciplines, of exercise, but just by forgetting about it and having the special view, the special insight of the world uh, that uh, was real in comparison to the illusion. And so this led to uh, a particular brand of the idea of, uh, of a Gnosticism, that is of uh, docetism, uh, which really applied in some ways to Jesus Christ, that, uh, you know, if he is God and deity, then he really can't have anything to do with the fleshly world because that's, that's inferior. And uh, uh, God himself could never take on the form of flesh. Uh, he could never have any contact with this world, which is corruptible. The idea of Jesus as the Son of God, the incarnate Son of God, was inconceivable to them. And so I think that's what John really is talking about there in 1 John chapter 1. That which we heard, we seen with our eyes, we looked at and we touched with our hands. That's what we declare to you. Jesus did come in the flesh. And he goes ahead in 1 John 4 and verse 2 to say, anybody that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And of course, there's much more to being a faithful Christian than just a confession that Jesus come in, came in the flesh. But he is, he is debating, I think, with these early Gnostics who said he didn't come in the flesh. Uh, some of them even supposed that uh, when he walked, he didn't leave a shadow because his body wasn't a real body, that he didn't leave prints in the sand when he walked because his body didn't have any real weight. It was just an illusion because God could never take on the form of flesh because the, the world is evil, illusory. God is real and holy. And uh, he, he continues even in the second epistle to say uh, that those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh, uh, then those go out and deceive many people. And that seems to be, you know, a uh, kind of rising sort of an idea at the end of the first century when Paul is writing. But we're not really so much concerned about those ancient sort of doctrines. What we're concerned about is the modern version of Gnosticism, neo-Gnosticism, which is a newly powerful philosophy, and uh, perhaps in some ways the most difficult of the isms for us to grasp, because I think for many of you, it is not something that has infected your thinking, as maybe has been the case with uh, some of the other isms. They're more likely 
to be something that's enticing for us and and uh, maybe uh, we encounter that more frequently, uh, the humanism, materialism, determinism, we can see what those are. Gnosticism, on the other hand, might be a little more difficult. But what you find is if you go to a bookstore and you look around on the shelves and you just kind of step back and not just go and look at your favorite section about uh, politics or your favorite section about history or, or engineering or whatever, if you just look around, what you'll see is enormous swaths of the bookstore have to do with this revival of, of spirituality in American culture, that it's a new age movement expression of what it means to be spiritual. You'll find these uh, uh, kind of self-help books that emphasize uh, some kind of special knowledge like astrology or uh, magic oils or minerals. Uh, this idea that somehow there's a way to be in tune with the universe if we just knew the right kind of uh, mantras. You look at the smorgasbord, really, of spirituality, pop psychology, philosophy, self-improvement through mantras and mindfulness and meditation, all mixed together. And there's this sense that there's an increasingly large number of people in the world today who buy into this kind of philosophy, that the way to enlightenment is from inside out, the way to uh, salvation is from the inside out, some special understanding. And that understanding is uh, very much like the kind of understanding, uh, maybe couched in new uh, age kind of terminology, but very much like that of the Gnostics in the second and third century. That uh, the world as we see it is just not the real world. That uh, there is this possibility of some kind of virtual reality, maybe, a cybernetic view of the world, and uh, the sense that uh, if, in fact, uh, uh, we were to uh, look beyond the Zoom meetings, look beyond the virtual reality, that we would see beyond the world as it appears to us with our eyes and with our senses, and, and in, in the same way that we could take off the virtual reality headset and see the world, uh, or double tap and pass through and see the world, that if we could pull this you know, perceptual veil aside, we'd see the real world. And by seeing that, we would uh, understand things that we could uh, uh, not understand before. And uh, this kind of, of, uh, of uh, idea focuses very much on intuition. It's the kind of thing that, uh, you know, I can't put it in words, but I know. I know what I know. I know what I feel. And I said, well, explain it to me, you know. Put it in a way that I can understand it. And, of course, it's hard. I understand. It's hard when something is important to you and uh, maybe it has some kind of difficult sort of uh, complexities to it or when it's a novel idea. It's difficult to use the words to explain to people what you're talking about, but they don't even need to feel to try that. They don't think they need I know what I feel. I may not be able to say it, but I know it. And as I have students sometimes tell me, my opinion is as good as your opinion. It's like, I don't, I don't understand, you know, how you think your opinion is as good as my opinion. I, I was marriage and family class. My opinion is as good as yours. I said, well, I, 
I've been to school 26 years. I've been married 40 years. I have four children, and I have 10 grandchildren, and I've been teaching this class for 25 years, and I'm the one that's going to make up the test. I don't know how your opinion is as good as mine. <laughs> but somehow, there's a sense of everybody has the insight to know what is right for them. And if I can, even if I can't express it, I, I know what it is. And this kind of new idea of Gnosticism, I think, is prevalent around us everywhere. Hopefully, as I've described it, you say, wait a minute. I've heard those kind of things. I've been worried about that before. Let me suggest to you seven dangerous tenets of modern Gnosticism that we need to pay attention to. Uh, See if we can transform this kind of general idea of what Gnosticism is into an understanding of the dangerous ism that is around us in the world. And the first of these, and kind of go back through and repeat the things that we have looked at, is that knowledge is all important. When you have people, particularly uh, in the uh, area of religion, who are going to say that salvation is achieved not by works, not by obedience, not by some actual work that God has done, but salvation is going to come through what we know. That's pretty dangerous, and that's pretty close to what we mean by this sort of uh, neo-Gnosticism. And, of course, there are modern Gnostic uh, churches, and their, their idea is humanity needs to be awakened and brought to a realization of the true nature of mankind. That it's only those who have entered the path of transfiguration and are being reborn who can return to the treasury of light. And how do I do that? Well, you've got to feel it. You've got to know it. You've got to see it in some way. And this knowledge is not something intellectual. And, and here's, you know, where I, I, I have some real difficulty about that. I don't, I mean, knowledge to me is something that is hard won. You got to study. You got you to try the ideas out. You got to challenge them. And uh, when they have been, they pa pass the test, then we can have <clears throat> some confidence in those things. But from their point of view, knowledge just, that instantaneously had this redeeming, liberating function. Uh, it is the path to directly experiencing the divine. It's not like I read in the scriptures and I, and I have to use my uh, God-given ra reasoning and understanding to think, what is it about God that this passage is telling me? No, they have a much easier path to God than that. That is... There is just this sudden insight, this intuitive grasp uh, in which we directly apprehend God. You know, it's almost pantheistic, as we talked about that earlier this week. God is everywhere and in everything, and if God is everywhere and in everything, the most directly accessible aspect of getting to God is in my own self. That's where God is, and that's where I need to look for him, and that's where I need to meet him. Not in the pages of a book, not in some kind of plan of salvation, but in my own heart. You know, there are those uh, cases in which we need, I, I, 
I think most of us would agree, to read the Bible in a devotional kind of way. Uh, I, I have this debate sometimes, uh, especially with the young people. You know, we, we go and study the Bible in an academic sense. You know, we, we parse it rhetorically, grammatically, uh, historically, logically. You do the, you know, whatever kind of particular uh, kind of outlining that you do these days. Or we could use the Bible devotionally in uh, what they call devos. We can read it and let it have its influence on us. And I don't think either one of those are particularly wrong. But if that's, those are the only ways in which you use the Bible, you're missing, I think, what God intends the Bible to be used for. Come, let us reason together, he says. And we need to read it to know what he requires of us, not read it academically just so we can learn new things about it, ever learning and never able to come to knowledge of the truth. We don't need to read it just devotionally so it can, you know, make us have some kind of particular emotional reaction. We need to read it to find out what he wants us to do. And then, you know, am I doing that? Test ourselves. But, you know, what happens with the devotional periods these days? is there's this new focus on inner experience. The important thing is not what the Bible is saying, but, but what my, uh, my inner self reacts to that, how I, uh, how I intuit that, and how it uh, affects me emotionally. When we have moved to that kind of Bible study, we have missed, I think, the important message that is there for us. And we are partaking or at least some extent influenced by this kind of neo-Gnosticism. This kind of knowledge is intuitive and not objective. It is a kind of personal experience that transcends the community of the church. It transcends the historical, traditional understanding of the, uh, of the plan of salvation. It transcends even the word itself, and it lifts us up. And, and we come in contact with God uh, alone. I, there, there's always been the elements of mysticism and uh, some kind of, uh, of divine inspiration in various kinds of worship groups around the world. But this is newly kind of powerful, I think, in the, in the minds of lots of young people. And, of course, here's the, so many people, you ask them, you know, are you religious? No, I'm not religious. I'm spiritual. I'm spiritual-minded, not religious. And, and that may begin, you know, in some kind of useful attempt to avoid hypocrisy, uh, useful attempt to avoid just some kind of external sort of obedience and to try and reform ourselves from the inside out. But what it ends up in being is this kind of sense somehow that there's a magic in our inner feelings that takes precedence over any kind of outward obedience. There's a magic in our intuitive understanding of the scriptures that voids the necessity for the hard work of studying the Bible and memorizing scriptures. And of course, we need to be careful about that. We need to understand the scriptures and what they say and that needs to get inside our hearts and our minds and, and work its changes there, but in a way in which it, it uh, is reflected in a checking against the scriptures continually. Uh, it's going to be reflected in the way in which we live our lives. That's the point that John keeps making over and over again. The, the evangelical romanticism of the, uh, 
of the 1800s, you know, had something of this in it. One of their uh, uh, poems, my heart wants the Father, my heart wants the Son, my heart wants the Holy Ghost. My heart says the Bible has a trinity for me, and I mean to hold it by my heart. And, uh, you know, that I'm afraid that begins to sound a lot like some of the new songs that we're writing and singing. And, uh, you know, I hope that's not the case. I mean, there, there certainly is some truth in those things, but what's the emphasis? And, and what is it distracting us from? Hopefully we don't go as far as the rest of that poem. I am glad a man can do it when there is no other mooring. And, of course, we do sing the song, and I enjoy singing that song. He lives, he lives. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. And I think there's every great uh, deal of truth in that. But what's the emphasis there? Is that the only way I know he lives? Because he lives in my heart and I feel it? Or is it the B-I-B-L-B-E that tells me so? How do we know? Just because of intuitive knowledge or based on what God has told us in his scripture? You know, if God is really this kind of, of, uh, of uh, accessible with our own spiritual kind of intuition, then we really didn't need the Bible anyway. Maybe it's just, you know, a, uh, a helpful aid to creating that sort of, of uh, intuitive knowledge. One of the other things that comes about from this is the idea that uh, those who know are special and they're not even going to be judged in the same way as others who are not so special, who don't have that special kind of knowledge. You know, one of the things that came out of the early Gnostic movement was, I'm a spiritual being, I have spiritual knowledge, what I do with my body is just a part of this illusory world, the flesh, and it really doesn't count that, uh, you know, there's no contact really between spirit and flesh. The flesh is just an illusion. That's why the docetists said there's no, God never took on the form of flesh. He never became incarnate. And if that's the case, then what I do with my body doesn't matter. I, as long as I have the right kind of feelings, I can be excused. And maybe I don't even need to be excused by the fact that uh, I have committed these kinds of infractions against the, the laws of the, of the scripture. You know, there was some of that idea uh, in uh, the Old Testament, in Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah chapter 7, one of those uh, places where Jeremiah is going to preach to the people of Jerusalem about the destruction that's coming, and the people of Jerusalem say, how, how can we be destroyed? This is God's place. And he says to them in Jeremiah chapter 7, when he is uh, preaching to them, he says, you, you need in verse 5, if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly practice justice between a man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the alien, the orphan, or the widow, do not shed innocent blood in this place, nor walk after other gods and their ruin, then I will let you uh, dwell in this place. But behold, you're trusting in deceptive words to no avail. And what are those deceptive words when they say, behold, the temple of the Lord, behold, the temple of the Lord. We are the Lord's people. What we do doesn't matter. He is not going to punish us. He's not going to destroy the city because behold, this is the temple of the Lord. We are special people. And we're not going to suffer that kind of uh, a punishment that you're saying. There's always been that tendency to say, eh, God will make an exception for me. I am special. But here it gets this new lease on life and the, the neo-Gnostic idea 
I am special because I have this special knowledge, and it really kind of doesn't matter that I've done these things or that thing, or not done other things that I, I uh, that that religious people say I ought to do, attending services, you know, keeping yourself pure from the world, uh, you know, modesty rules, drinking, uh, you know, those kind of lustful activities. Yeah, maybe practically there's some some uh, some problems with that, but really it doesn't matter because I know the Lord. Behold, the temple of the Lord is here, and uh, we are safe because we have that special kind of knowledge. One of the things that uh, maybe is contradictory to that is the idea that self-improvement becomes the object then of religion, that religion points to our, our getting our uh, heads on straight. It points to the idea of uh, really getting in touch with ourselves. It points to trying to know who we really are authentically. One of the dramatic changes that has taken place in the world in the 20th and now on into the 21st century is the uh, triumph of the therapeutic self. That it's almost the one key that the world pays attention to is you got to know who you are. You got to be authentic. You got to find out who you are and you got to be true to yourself. And if you can do that, it doesn't matter whether that true self conforms to what other people think it ought to be. You are, well, in essence, you're saved because you have been true to yourself. You've been authentic. And of course, uh, one of the early authors of that kind of idea of the therapeutic self was uh, uh, Jung, who is the father in some ways of modern psychology, and he openly described himself as a Gnostic. And his mysticism began at a very early age and permeated everything that he did. And, uh, you know, this idea then is what we need to really focus on is not redemption, not forgiveness of sins, not guilt. What we need to focus on is getting in touch with ourselves, of being true to ourselves, of being authentic. That's neo-Gnosticism. And in many ways, neo-Gnosticism is anti-organizational, anti-orientation, and institutional churches are viewed as the uh, uh, spiritual enemies that uh, being uh, in a church means in some ways that you've already been inauthentic. You have lost sight of who you are. You've sold out to somebody else's view of what is spiritual as opposed to finding it in yourself. Uh, Roof did a uh, survey back in the uh, early part of the uh, uh, 21st century when he uh, surveyed Americans about their religious beliefs. And uh, 80% of the people that he interviewed, 80% said an individual should arrive at his or her own religious beliefs independent of any churches or synagogues. And uh, about half of the people agreed with this statement, people have God within them, so churches aren't really necessary. This is the idea that, uh, you know, is taking root but is ascending in the world in which we live today. It's part of the reason that it is so difficult for churches to retain young people because they are not taking every thought captive for the obedience to Jesus Christ. They are being 
uh, indoctrinated in the ideas of the world. And this, this kind of importance and emphasis on some sort of enlightened understanding, the authentic self, spirituality as opposed to being religious, and that churches really kind of are an impediment to actual fellowship with God. In another kind of context, somebody has accused Americans of greasy familiarity. When American tourists go overseas and they're in uh, some of the great cathedrals or in some of the great uh, 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 architectural wonders of the world, they, they express this kind of seeming sort of uh, acceptance or uh, feeling that they belong there. Oh, yes, you know, we have some things like this back home. Greasy familiarity. Uh, and unfortunately, I think that kind of characterizes the way in which many people feel about God. There's kind of greasy familiarity with God. They feel like they have some kind of direct and immediate access to God whenever and uh, however they want. And uh, there's this sense that somehow God is going to be impressed that we took the time and cared enough to worship from our hearts. And uh, as long as it was real and it was honest and we were vulnerable before God, then he has to accept that. That's a, that's a kind of a familiarity with God I think we ought to be careful about. I'm always reminded when the angels of the Lord came and people saw them revealed as angels, they fell down in terror in front of those angels of the Lord. No man can see God and live, Moses was told. You know, that kind of puts the lie to this sort of greasy familiarity that God, you know, is, is compelled almost to accept us as long as we're authentic and real in our worship. You know, there's this uh, sense among the uh, uh, youth of America that, uh, you know, the institutions are not to be trusted and I. I understand that when you look at the human institutions uh, and maybe even when you look at some of the so-called religious institutions. But there is a uh, real danger when they are led to this sense that any organized group of people that claims to worship God or preach the gospel is somehow to be distrusted and uh, that instead of listening to the traditions and listening to what the uh, 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 established religions have to say that what counts really is not what the Bible says and uh, whether these uh, churches and their message is consistent with the scriptures. What really matters is how do you feel about it? That kind of rebelliousness against authority, disdain for institutions, that was a part of the uh, uh, early second and third century Gnostics and that becomes a part of the kind of practice of Gnosticism in America today. Uh, one of the other things you recognize about this is that uh, this kind of idea of Gnosticism demeans the real world. It demeans the practice that we uh, are called upon to be the salt of the earth, that we're called upon to be the light that is set on a hill, that we are required to be in the world and to preach the gospel to the world, that we're not to step outside of the world, that we are uh, to be a positive influence on the world, and that we have this uh, obligation to uh, the community around about us. That's not something that is uh, uh, the Gnostics are 
are uh, capable of uh, understanding. And of course, ultimately, what that leads to when you demean the spiritual world uh, or the secular world, and uh, we have no obligations to the secular world, and the secular world is all kind of uh, inferior and, uh, and uh, has to be uh, set aside, neglected, or uh, denied. It leads to this kind of concept of, of the docetus of the uh, first century, that Jesus could not have come in the flesh because he is spirit, and spirit can have no contact with the flesh. And as Paul said, what a great mystery that Jesus came in the flesh. And what, a, what an emphasis that John places on that. If you say that Jesus came in the flesh, then you're from God. And if you don't admit that Jesus came in the flesh, then you clearly are not from God. There is a sense in which we have some difficulty of putting those ideas together. But God created us from the dust of the earth. And he breathed into us, and we became a living soul in his own image. And we have this dual kind of, of, uh, of uh, existence. We are fleshly, and yet we are spiritual. And somehow we have to come to some uh, recognition, acknowledgement of that. One of the amazing things about the gospel message that sets the gospel apart from any other, so far as I know, religion, is a bodily resurrection that the sea will give up its dead and the earth will give up its dead. And those of us who are alive and remain when the Lord comes again, we'll be transformed in the twinkling of an eye. And the body won't be the same as the body that we inhabit today, but it will still be a spiritual body. And there is a sense in which that's an important message. We can't just say this world is an illusion. We have to understand the importance of the world in which we live and the life that we live in the world that we have to be uh, tending to more than just inner intuitive experiences. We have to pay attention to the way in which we live our lives, obedient to the scriptures and interacting with other people, that that's all part and parcel of the gospel message for us. And, of course, the end result of that kind of, uh, of uh, demeaning of the secular world and of the flesh is uh, this idea of lawlessness. If, in fact, you, you, you can set the secular world aside, then it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you do in the flesh. It doesn't matter what you do in the world because it's all transitory. It's all an illusion anyway. And that's where we get the kind of profligate uh, behavior of those that Jude and... Uh, John and Peter denounced in the first century. And I, I'm, I'm not sure whether all of that, uh, in fact, I'm certain all of that does not come just from the idea of Gnosticism. But I am pretty sure that in the world in which we live today, there's an increasing danger from this Gnostic kind of an idea that many young people are being infected with. If I just have this authentic feeling, then the rest of it doesn't matter. And that's erroneous and contrary to the teaching of the scripture. And we need to bring that thought captive to the obedience to Jesus Christ. And of course, of greatest importance here is to recognize that uh, if you want to be saved, you can't be saved just on the basis of some kind of intuitive sort of flash of insight about who you are, about who God is. Those kind of feelings are not trustworthy. 
The only way that you can be saved is to go to God's revelation and try and understand what he has said. And most of us here, I think, understand pretty clearly what he said. The only way that we can be saved is by the blood of Jesus Christ. And the only way we can get in touch with the blood of Jesus Christ is the way in which he has made it possible for us to come into contact with that blood. And that's through baptism into the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, the Gnostics can't change that. That's what the scriptures say. And that's the way by which we're saved. And if you're here this evening and you understand the need for redemption, salvation in your life, then you need to render obedience to Jesus in that way this evening so that you can be saved. We encourage you to do that as we stand and sing this song.